Good evening all, hope you can hear me. So uh, we're about to start the first JMIB, Just Morris Inside Burgundy Zoom video and uh, a little bit nervous because we haven't done this before. And also it's quite a daunting uh, task that we're uh, going to tackle tonight, which is the uh, wretched premature oxidation of white burgundy. In fact, of white wines in general, we'll come on to that. Um, I think most of you by now will be fairly familiar with how Zoom works, but just in case you're not, down at the bottom of the screen, you should have the opportunity to hit the chat button or the question and answer button. And I think there's even a, a raise your hand button uh, if you want to draw uh, yourself to the attention of our host, because there is something that you would really, really like to come on screen and share with us. But uh, do all the way through, please use the chat button as much as you can. Tell us who you are, where you come from, what you're drinking, because I hope you've all got something in the glass. Uh, to, well, I say tonight, it's tonight here, but uh, uh, if you're greetings from the Willamette Valley, it's uh, maybe a little bit early to be uh, uh, tucking into a large glass, but each to their own. So, uh, I've poured, incidentally, <laughs> not a great start. Uh, this is my first uh, wine here. Um, which is, I've, I've got two 1996s, both of which I was not confident about. Uh, the first is a Puy Frise from uh, Verger. Still not confident. And the second with the cork, uh, the cork con completely disintegrated, hopeless cork, uh, is a 1996 Merceau from Arno Odd. Um, I'll let them settle in in their glasses and we'll, we'll see where they go from here. But they're both quite an amber colour, though still reasonably fresh. Great, all right, so uh, here we all are, uh, more to join I hope, but it's a good start, and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about my interpretation of um, premature oxidation. I don't have any certain answers, not many, I have plenty of theories uh, which we can, you may can agree with or, or not agree with, uh, I've got some pointers, uh, one or two ideas uh, for the future, um, but this is really a, a review of where we are, what I've understood about it, and, and what's going to happen in the future. So, uh, first of all, uh, premature oxidation, which we've shortened most of us to premox or even just pox. Uh, we associate it a lot with white burgundy, but it's not unique to white burgundy. Um, <clears throat> What is it? It's when wines age before their time. So typically we would have said that a village white burgundy should be at its best at eight to ten years old and maybe the Premier Cruise could last longer. Um, we probably these days occasionally will accuse a wine of being prematurely oxidized when there's some other problem with it or indeed it's without us thinking about it got to 15 or 20 years old from a lesser vintage and there's no reason why it shouldn't be on its last legs. But nonetheless, quite clearly, there is a real true phenomenon of premature oxidation. Is it just white burgundy? Uh, I would say no. I think it affects uh, all regions, all white wines. Doesn't really affect reds on the grounds that reds have got uh, tannins, polyphenols, which uh, protect them. Just occasionally, in a couple of vintages where I have thought a few wines from amongst red burgundies have oxidized a little bit quickly. But we'll stick with the whites. Uh, I found it in white Rhone wines, white Bordeaux wines, white Loire wines, various other wines. Um, it's perhaps less prevalent, uh, maybe because um, it's more typical for us to put away uh, quantities of white burgundy in the cellar for long-term aging. In many other regions, more often people have drunk them younger, uh, or they're more of a minority, as in uh, a white Hermitage or a white Chateau of Dupin. But I will just read out something from a paper by the Bordeaux researcher, uh, Valérie Levine, uh, in a paper that she did um, uh, with uh, Professor Dubourdieu uh, before he sadly died rather early. But she said, however, it would be wrong to think that this problem affects white burgundy more than other wines because of some mysterious influences found only in that region. In fact, Promox affects all white wines, still and sparkling, dry and sweet, all grape varieties, all origins. The issue is identical for white wines everywhere and with the same causes and the same effects. 
I would just say that uh, the Riesling grape seems to me a little bit less affected, um, perhaps because it's got high acidity and also the maybe residual sugar, so maybe higher sulfur levels. Um, but I have found it occasionally in Rieslings and I've certainly found it in some sweet wines from, from elsewhere. Right, so the key causes we can look at, but also the fascinating thing, which ought to lead us towards what the causes are, is why did it happen so suddenly? Because really, for white burgundy at any rate, everything fell off a cliff, maybe with 95, certainly with the 96 vintage, but around about the timeline. That's now 25 years ago. So it's a little bit amazing that we haven't totally sorted this problem by now. And I don't think we can sort it unless we're really clear about understanding what the reasons behind it are. So um, amongst the key causes, um, well, let's start with the raw material and uh, what's happening out there in the vineyards, what's happening with the climate. And here there is nothing, I think, which is um, clearly attributable to 95, 96. But there are changes between what used to happen before then, let's say in the 1970s, when I think some great white burgundy was being made compared to what's happening today. Um, viticulture is better. Almost all the vineyards are ploughed nowadays. That's probably a good thing. That's probably helping the roots go down further. Some people prefer to grass over, and we'll mention that later on because there is a possible negative to that, even though it, it seems to be quite a good idea otherwise. Yields amongst the good producers, the sort where you'd want to buy the wines and lay them down, uh, are pretty well managed, certainly a lot lower than some of the famous names of the 1970s. Um, and in general, I think it's hard to say somebody's doing something wrong in the vineyards. But there is one other big change, which is, of course, the global warming. So the wines are clearly riper. Ripeness is also helped or exacerbated, if you don't like it so much by the fact that the viticulture is, uh, I was going to say smarter, but uh, has been modernized in such a way that probably has brought ripeness earlier. And we now need to look at forms of viticulture which might actually slow down uh, the ripening. So riper grapes mean more sugar, mean lower acidity. Just going back to that point about premature oxidation hitting all sorts of wines everywhere, we always used to say, right when I was starting the wine business, that white Rhone wines, you had to drink them really young or you had to wait for a long, long time because in between the two, they appeared to be oxidized. And people still often talk about that phenomenon and just explain it as how to handle white Rhones without any of the pejorative comment that you get every time a white burgundy is, is, is a bit damaged. Now, if there is something uh, about a warmer climate and riper grapes, which leads to this phenomenon, then you could argue maybe with global warming, that it's just mo moved further northwards in the Northern Hemisphere. And that's why it's become more prevalent in Burgundy and used to be the case in cooler times. I won't put too much store by that, but it's, it's something to, to throw into the, the piece. Now, I did mention that there was a possible negative to the grassing over in the vineyards. And that is because the grass competes with the vine for um, nitrogen. And apparently we need nitrogen because there is a substance called glutathione, if I pronounced it correctly, which uh, Dr. Levine and Professor Dubordieu think is absolutely wonderful and is, is the good news in, in all of this. Um, there's a product called Sotalon, which is the bad news, which is giving us the oxidized flavors. The glutathione is a great protector. and uh, as long as you've got enough nitrogen um, that uh, gets into the vine, into the grapes, uh, then you're going to have a decent amount of glutathione and it will be stable. During the fermentation it dies away but it comes back at the end of it. My, I'm not a scientist by training but I've endeavoured to understand and I only hope I've understood it well enough that I can also spice it out for other people. So and um, uh, she thinks, Valerie Levine thinks, that actually maintaining this glutathione is one of the absolute keys all the way through. And she says that you need to avoid excessive yields. I'm not completely sure about that. Drought conditions are bad news. That's possible. And later on, we will start playing around with certain individual vine uh, vintages to see um, if there is a style of vintage which is damaged a little bit more. Um, she doesn't like the competition from grass. 
and she doesn't like superficial roots. And if you plough, then you've killed off those superficial roots. So, so that's a good thing. Right, at this point, we have got through to the moment when um, uh, grapes are ready to be picked. And I'm just going to break and uh, hold up my glass of wine. It's not a horror to drink, but it's been effective. That colour is, it's not dull, but it's very amber. I'm getting a lot of quince flavours on the nose. I'm not particularly getting the sort of the curried walnuts, which uh, apparently is a sign of Ciclon. Um, this is, in fact, a vintage in which um, uh, Jean-Marie Guffin's at Verger used very little sulphur, and that may have had an effect. It's a bottle that he gave me shortly afterwards. Um, as, a, as a thank you for a favour, he, he thought I'd done him and uh, he may or may not have done me a favour, but when I looked at these bottles in my cellar, a couple of that he gave me, I felt not so sure about that. Uh, the colour looked, held, held it up to light even through the glass, the colour looked a little bit advanced. But anyway, I decided tonight I would, I would spring for one. And I'm seeing on the side now that you're, you're writing in with what you've got, uh, whether it's <laughs> badly premoxed or somewhat oxed from 2002 and then a couple of good 2004s. So uh, anyway, uh, keep going. I hope you've all got something nice and interesting and white that uh, um, will illustrate one point or another of what we're talking about. At some point, if neither of these wines that I've got cheers up, I will, I will go back into my little box down by my side and open up something else. Okay, so we now get as far as um, uh, the winemaking um, and our grapes have arrived. So uh, we're now going to put them into the press uh, or maybe we're gonna crush them first. Back in the old days, it was fairly routine to crush your white grapes before you press them. Now, what's in a grape? You've got the skin, the, the flesh, which is with the juice, the juice in the flesh and some, the pips. Pips don't really enter into it with whites, but the skin does. And we know how important the skin is for the reds because it gives you obviously the color, but also a lot of the flavor and maybe a few tannins. So if you crush your grapes before you press them, you are allowing just a little bit of skin contact, nothing like the orange wines, which are favored in some quarters nowadays, but just a little bit of skin contact. Apparently it also, it doesn't change the total acidity of the grapes, but it does um, change the pH a little bit. And certainly uh, Jean-Marc Rouleau is a great believer in, uh, in this. He wouldn't do it in a year in which there was any disease pressure around. And he felt that with the skins, he might be getting some off flavors, but he has been a fan of crushing the grapes otherwise uh, before pressing them. And it sort of seems to me that if the reds are important in what they give to red wines, wouldn't you probably want to have a little bit of the skin effect uh, in the white wines too? Uh, it's been very much out of favour. It's coming back a little bit. Um, you also have to be careful when you ask the question of a grower, do you crush your grapes or not? Because a number of them will say, yeah, sure. But what they actually mean is that they fill up uh, their um, press, uh, horizontal pneumatic press, with as many grapes, uh, whole bunches as they can, and then they tread them down a bit just so they can get more in, but that treading down gives a little bit of a crushing effect. But that's not um, uh, really what I mean. Uh, a few people will crush and destem, uh, but, but that's rare. Mostly nowadays people shove their whole bunches straight into the top of the press. So that's our, our first thing. And now in days gone by in the press, you would have, have had a hydraulic press, a Vaslin hydraulic press typically, and those things were pretty brutal and they used to mash the grapes up and they would mash the skins up. And it gave you what is often referred to as a phenolic taste in the wine, so sort of the green and leafy feel. And uh, frankly, that was the taste which I was used to when tasting very young burgundies, things like 1979, tasted from barrel or, or very shortly afterwards. It was quite typical. Nowadays, people have gone very much against that. Um, cleanliness, purity, freshness have become the watchwords. And this is something I'm gonna to revert to on a number of occasions uh, throughout this evening. But for me, I wonder, I wonder if we can't allow a little bit of this more phenolic character when the wines are young 
uh, in exchange for better protection and more interest in the wines when they're a lot older. So that's a thought. So in come these um, uh, pneumatic presses, and you often see it said that they came in in around 96, 95, 96. I don't think that's really true. I've traced some back to the 1970s. I haven't been able to do a full analysis. Uh, producers are a little bit leery of giving that specific information. And indeed, people who sell um, pre pneumatic presses might not want to show a clear correlation between lots of people buying them and the exact time that premature oxidation came into play. But my view is that they started coming in quite a bit before, and probably this was the high point of when the majority of people um, had switched over was around about now. A couple of people have just gone back to uh, using the old fashioned hydraulic presses, and a couple of people who for so long stayed with hydraulic presses have actually now switched to a pneumatic press. So they have one now at Cochetury, which they didn't for the longest time, and Patrick Chevillier has got one as well. So um, there we have one of the big differences. It is also true that pneumatic presses have evolved over the period. Uh, in the early days, they didn't really protect anything. There was a lot of oxygen uh, in use um, or surrounding the, 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 the cage of the, of the press. Nowadays, it is more protective. So um, as we go on with uh, uh, the pressing, then the question is, what do you want to happen with your juice? Because there are oxidases in the wine. Do you mind if it oxidizes at this very early stage? Now it gets a bit more technical. I'll express it as best as I can, but we're at the, the limit of my scientific knowledge. But you have um, two types of phenols in your grapes. You've got flavonoid phenol, phenols and non-flavonoid. And in the flesh of the grape are your non-flavonoids. And apparently they don't show oxidation very easily, very evidently. And they're going to come out of your press almost immediately, very early on, with the first juices that come out. So a number of producers now are doing a sort of a fractional uh, press in which they protect the early um, uh, non-flavonoid um, phenols, which are coming out with the first juices, uh, and make sure that they are safe from too much oxidation. You've then got what they call the flavonoid phenols, which will come out with the skins and the pips. So as you're pressing uh, more, pressing harder, pressing later, uh, you're more likely to get these. And a number of people have now saying, okay, we won't protect them because you get a slightly bitter character when these phenols oxidize. So we actually want that to happen. We want to get rid of those. We know that the juice coming out of the stage will be brown, if you've ever seen, Many of you listening in may have been involved in wine production. You know the colour of that juice. It's like the great grey, green, greasy, or perhaps slightly brown River Limpopo. Um, uh, it's not something that's, that's clean and clear and um, sort of ready to turn itself into wine. So, but we don't mind at this stage because that's all going to be settled out at one point or other. It's not going to get into the final wine. So that's um, the, the key part of what I'm want to say about the press. I'm now going to try in my universal glass the other wine. So this is a 96 straight Marceau from uh, Arnaud before he, he did his sort of separate cuvées. So this is probably what would be nowadays the Claudia's Ombre um, bottling. And in those days he used to pick um, much later than uh, uh, he does now and was making quite a different um, style of wine. I opened a bottle of this in, in Hong Kong, uh, which was a bit fresher than this. It had some peachy aromatics. It showed the sunshine a lot. And it was fully mature, but that's maybe fair enough for a 23, 24-year-old um, white burgundy. This has gone a bit further, um, but that's, that's a bright, fullish yellow colour. I don't know how well you can see it. I'm into... Um, Sorry about that, I've got a little bit there, as I say, the cork disintegrated totally. Bits of cork in there. Mm. Apricot, quinces, high acidity from this particular vintage. Um, it's fresh fruit still on the palate. I think that's probably going to get better rather than worse as um, time goes on. And I'm rather thinking that my Puy uh, say from Verger probably isn't going to make it, but we'll see how they develop. Mm. 
Good, good, good. Having a little look on the side to see how you're all doing. Somebody's having a lovely non-Premox 2005 BNU Butter from Paul Perno. I will talk about the individual vintages a little bit later if we have time. Okay, so we have pressed our juice and out comes this thickish, thickish juice. Uh, and you probably pop it into a tank. A few people go straight to barrel with everything, all the solids. But if you put it into a tank, what will happen is that right at the bottom will settle a really thick sediment, and then you'll have a clearer sediment that's still a bit sedimentary, and then you'll have clear juice on top of that. And at this point, you can choose. Um, and a few people, Francois Jobard, for example, always used to send the whole lot down into barrel uh, and for a long time. And he did make some pretty phenolic wines, which on the whole aged really, really well. Um, others will clear out the, the thick stuff, the mud at the bottom, but uh, chuck the rest into barrel. Others will take just the clear juice and then maybe they'll filter through the rest so that they can reincorporate some of it. And other people only want the clear juice. This is dangerous for me because I think you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater because I think all the antioxidant uh, that remains from the grape skins and the rest of the grape are going to be uh, in the uh, in the solids of one form or another. And if you've got rid of them completely, then I think that you are making your wine too clean and you are in danger of oxidation further down the road. That's that's my take on it at any rate. Now, until very recently, the great majority of people, I suspect, would have, um, as soon as they'd settled, perhaps overnight, perhaps 24, 36 hours, uh, but they put their juice down into barrel, they let the fermentation happen in barrel. More and more people are saying, okay, we've listened to Dr. Levine, etc., who says that one of the key things is your fermentation should go through cleanly and quickly. We don't want any stuck fermentations. So increasingly, I'm hearing of people who begin the fermentation in tank, because then you've got a large amount all fermenting together. Imagine if you put it before any fermentation into barrel, each barrel is going to work at its own speed and some of them may um, be reluctant to start. So if you start it in tank, you then got the whole thing bubbling up nicely. As soon as you're confident that it's fully underway, then you can send it down by gravity, preferably into your barrels. So that's a little bit of a change, a little bit of a cleaning up of the process. Um, so in it goes uh, into barrel and then at some point you'll have the malolactic fermentation that used to be more typically in um, uh, Burgundy not till the following spring. Now quite often it will happen uh, before, before Christmas. Some people want that to happen and again Dr Levine is recommending that you don't wait too long because you're not going to do any heavy sulfuring until after the malolactic fermentation has gone through. I'm going to come to sulfur regimes later on. And so um, if you've left it unprotected without sulfur, then um, you are a little bit more at risk of things going wrong. So, uh, so that's a little bit of a change. Now, lees stirring uh, or batonnage in French is really quite important. Um, and uh, interestingly, it's actually a technique that was sort of rediscovered by um, Professor Dubourdieu in Bordeaux, looking back at what people had done in the 19th century. And um, uh, it then became much more popular in Burgundy. Now, why was it introduced? It was introduced as an antioxidant because your lees uh, have got uh, antioxidant properties. And it's really important to have your wine on the lees, but if it's sitting inert at the bottom of the barrel, it's probably not interacting with the wine and doing much good. So the idea came that you should stir it up into the wine a little bit, and then it would have, uh, it would allow its antioxidant properties to come in more into play. Now, as is so typical with so many different things, whether it's new wood or uh, de-leafing, or, or in this case, uh, lee stirring, people take what is a good idea if used in moderation when it's needed, and say, if a little bit's good, a lot is better. And you've got a, a huge overplaying of the, um, Lee's stirring card to um, the extent that people were doing it viciously several times a week. Uh, you've got to take the bung out of your barrel to put the um, bits of metal in that you probably use for stirring and you're allowing oxygen in while you do that. And you're also in danger of pulverizing these poor little lees uh, to the extent that you're using up their valuable um, uh, 
characteristics um, and you're actually introducing much more oxygen rather than giving protection. So excess of the lee stirring was definitely a problem um, in Burgundy for quite a while and most people, most people have backed down. Uh, I asked um, um, uh, uh, Henri Boyer why people were still a few people were still doing a lot of lee stirring and he said sont tous des gaulois they're, they're still ancient gauls which is a very typical response i should say so uh we need to back down on that but we do need to keep the lees in play um now some people have gone for um overtly reductive uh winemaking and uh Costurie is one case in point pierre-yves colin moray strongly so jean-marc rouleau strongly so get the impression both of those are actually backing off a little bit thinking it's becoming a caricature a caricature but um broadly speaking if you use bigger barrels and again they're becoming much more typical in, in burgundy ostensibly because it means less new oak effect less wood in relation to a bigger amount of wine um but also the oxygen ingress is a little bit less the lees effect is a little bit more and if you're using bigger barrels, they will be very slightly more reductive and less oxidative. However, the key is if after the first year, as the new harvest comes in, you want to take your wine out of barrel and put it into tank, but make sure you transfer all the lees, then that's where the oxidation, I think during that second winter in tank, sorry, not the oxidation, that's where the reductive character probably particularly comes in. Um, and certainly it's, it's relatively recently, um, well, more than 10 years now, but uh, there was a moment when Jean-Marc Rouleau uh, switched from a second winter in wood to a second winter in tank. And it's from that time that he found that his wines had a slightly more reductive character. So um, that reductive character, I'm sure you're all familiar with it. Sometimes it's called gunflint, sometimes it's struck match, uh, but it is uh, based around um, some uh, reduction rather than oxidation. Uh, in, in the first place. So um, that's actually getting us most of the way uh, through the uh, winemaking, except for the element of um, playing around with oxygen levels and sulfur levels. Um, I'm just going to continue with Valerie Levine's uh, recommendations. She made eight. The first was back in the vineyards. Um, making sure that glutathione was properly uh, in place. Uh, she also wanted to limit the extraction of phenolic compounds, but you'll notice that I actually was quite keen on increasing them uh, um, during the pressing because she felt that preserves the glutathione. So we disagree on that and uh, I need to take that further. Um, she thinks it's important to protect the must and the wine sufficiently using inert gases and or sulfur dioxide. I made the point that you can perhaps uh, allow a few things to oxidize early because it will all fall out of the process before you see it later on. Uh, I made the point already that she is strong on that the alcoholic fermentation takes place relatively quickly, completely finished, um, and that needs a level of must clarification. Um, and you must have sufficient nitrogen and just the right amount of oxygen. So uh, she's not adding anything to uh, what I said before. And reducing the time lag before the analactic that we did uh, talk about and that does make sense. Um, she does however think that stirring lees uh, uh, or inoculating with malolactic bacteria can prove to be effective. So stirring lees probably okay, not too much for it. And then she wants to age the wine in as reductive as, uh, as reductive an environment as possible, which again comes back to the bigger barrels and the tanks. Right, so we now get up towards the bottling and here we can start to see a few things. Nothing so far that I have said suggests why we should have fallen off the cliff in 1996, um, with a possible exception of the pneumatic presses, but I am skeptical that the timing really quite works there. Now we come on to um, uh, some things. Once we get to closures, we'll definitely be coming on to some things which are time sensitive. So, oxidation, what's it all about? It is a question of having too much oxygen or too little protection in the form of sulfur. 
So let's look at too much oxygen and where does that come from? And at this being about to bottle stage, it comes from um, having uh, too much dissolved oxygen in the wine. Now, everybody's bottling line should leave an even fill so that as the wine comes off the bottle, the bottle comes off the bottling line, everything should be up to the same level below the, um, uh, the cork in the capsule, uh, if you're uh, labeling them all up at the same time. Uh, but what you don't know is how much dissolved oxygen you've got in the wine. In fact, prior to this being an issue, you wouldn't even have asked that question. So people started doing tests and they found that if you had in a sort of small um, bottling line, such as a small grower might have with four, six or eight filler heads, you might find that they all filled in a different way at a different rate and they all gave different levels of dissolved oxygen. So what I mean by dissolved oxygen is oxygen that's hidden inside the liquid but is available to uh, come out and oxidize things later on. Nowadays, you can measure them, and a lot of people have really tightened up, replaced their bottling lines, tightened up, tested much more thoroughly. So nowadays, that has been significantly resolved, but it's an issue that people weren't quite aware of. The other big problem on allowing oxygen in is, is if your closure fails. So prior to 1996, pretty much everyone, pretty much everywhere in the world, is going to be using corks. Some people would spend a lot of money and bought a very good quality of cork, theoretically very good quality, and some people will have bought whatever they could afford. Or I often have heard from people, particularly in Australia and New Zealand, that whatever they paid for, they actually got sort of a little bit the end of the line. That was their impression. They did feel that they got a lesser quality of cork than would have been typical of Bordeaux and Burgundy. I can't give an opinion on that either way. Um, plus, you've now got all sorts of wines being produced all around the world. Uh, even in the classic regions, or classic countries, I should say, probably more that's going into bottle rather than being sold in bulk. And, you know, you fill up your glass receptacle at the, uh, at the petrol station type winery. Um, so more is being bottled with corks being used. Huge pressure on the cork industry. Great, they say. They start planting much more cork forests, probably in wrong areas probably too many instances of the trees being planted too close together. Maybe they started harvesting them too young. Maybe they started taking the bark from too far down the tree. Probably they started um, re-harvesting too soon after the previous harvest. So it's very easy to blame the cork industry, but I think a certain amount of that blame probably should stick. Those are things which have been cited for corks being um, less good and it really did become uh, an issue. So the antipodes were the first to react and introduced the screw caps, uh, which were becoming fairly standardized any time after 2000, 2002, around about that period in Australia and New Zealand. It became the way to go for the great majority of white wines and a certain number of red wines as well. Early screw caps were perhaps not as good as they are today, and if you knock them, then maybe you would break the seal and you'd let oxygen in but they are a lot more sophisticated today. A little bit after that, we started using the, uh, we'll call them Diam, since that's the most widely available brand, but there are other brands available. And this is a reconstituted, completely cleaned up cork, which is much more impermeable, and people have neither cork issues nor oxidation issues um, in theory, and I would agree also, I, I believe in practice, very, very occasionally come across uh, a cork tank. Um, and the other thing you can do is seal the outside with wax, which is fine for limited production top-end wines or magnums, but frankly sommeliers hate them because you then get wax uh, on your nice white tablecloths in your, in your restaurant. Uh, so there are pros and cons there, and, and it's quite a lot of extra work for the producer to do as well. So broadly speaking, the options now are alternatives to cork, uh, the waxing the seals, and better corks. And to be fair, now at long last, the um, uh, cork industry has made quite an effort to do much, much better with their corks. Um, people with uh, grand wines to sell have taken a look at uh, this and they have gone for longer corks and also a wider diameter corks. Uh, so they've moved up sometimes to 25 millimeter corks in diameter and into the 50s in length. 
The only snag is if you go too wide in diameter, you get a cork which is maybe too tight. It gets really, really difficult to get out of the bottle afterwards. One or two people have backed off that. And if you go too deep, uh, too long in your cork, if the cork is sticking below the level at which the neck of the bottle starts to widen out, you've got a problem there as well because you've got wine coming out around the, the side of the cork, whereas it should only be touching the bottom of the cork. Um, but it is fair to say the cork industry have done a lot better, and that is why one of the reasons why we're seeing uh, a lot fewer incidences even under cork, and then of course many people have moved away from using cork at all. Uh, so that's for the oxygen ingress side. Uh, now we look at the sulfur side. So uh, we think not to worry about sulfur um, for various reasons, partially because the consumer wasn't tasting wines young, even some wine merchants weren't, who were waiting until it was well into bottle. A few people would go to the regions and taste them out of cask or very early on in bottle. And professionals in a trade were actually perfectly used to uh, having to deal with sulfur when tasting young wines. We used to talk about the wet wool um, uh, aromatics, which are a little bit of sulfur mixing in with the wine itself. And that's particularly uh, uh, redolent for me today, or resonant, I should say, because A, it's been raining today, and B, we have a few sheep here um, on our property, and uh, the sheep shearing arrived today, so we, uh, we had wet sheep's wool being sheared. Um, but anyway, that's a, a digression. Um, since then, firstly, everybody's got worried about sulphur. All the bottles have to have these words contain sulphites. Legislation, not because of the sulphur in wine, but because of sulphur dusting on uh, lettuce leaves in sort of open cafeteria counters, um, were problems for people who have allergies to sulphur. And so that legislation came in and then everybody started to panic about it. Again, the purity thing. Um, and so in the old days, in inverted commas, people might have had north of 100 parts per million of total sulfur in their wines. And that could have been 50, 60 uh, parts of, uh, per million of free sulfur. Because we care about the free sulfur because that is what is going to protect your wine, whereas the total sulfur is what we're actually going to be able to taste and smell and feel. So uh, that was the old days. People brought it right down uh, to something more like, these are typical but not exact figures, let's say 35 parts per million total and 18 to 20 of free. Now they fairly soon discovered that the general processing that goes on when you bottle a wine eats up quite a lot of your free sulfur and it eats up typically 15 or 18 or even 20 parts per million. So if you only put in 18 or 20, wow, it's all gone actually at the bottling and you're left with nothing to protect you in the future. Uh, so that was a period and it was typical it, it, it increased during the 90s, and it is fair to say that that was more typical in um, 1996 uh, than before. Um, and uh, I'm going to need to come back on the corks because we talked about them keeping oxygen out, but there is another key aspect to the corks. Um, since then, people have tended to move back up on the sulfur uh, to get a little bit of better protection. Apart from the movement that's gone in completely the opposite way, which is the natural easter movement of saying sulfur is bad, we hate sulfur all the way through. Now, you can also refine how you use sulfur during the um, maturation process, um, or indeed right from the start. So people would typically protect their grapes on arrival at the winery with a dose of sulfur. That happens less now. Um, sulfur isn't just an antioxidant, it is also antibacterial, antimicrobial, so it does have other values. And people use, some people avoid it even with reds, a number use a small amount with, with red but avoid it with whites. And a lot of people now are trying to avoid using any sulfur at all until after they've gone through the malolactic process. Uh, and then they will do it case by case. Uh, again, previously you would then probably have added a, a dose of sulfur which would have been uniform across your cellar. Now it's more typical to analyze each barrel, each lot, each tank and say, where do I need it? That's holding up well, no sign of oxidation, it seems to have a little bit of sulfur anyway, because you get some naturally produced sulfur. I won't react there. This one's looking a little bit more doubtful, this one I'll protect. Uh, so that's quite a smart way to proceed. 
And it appears to be the case that the less sulfur you put in at this stage, the less you have to put in later on. Now, I am personally not particularly keen on avoiding sulfur all the way through and not even putting any in at the bottling. I understand that there is a movement that likes to do that, fine. But for me, for grape wines, which ought to evolve in a good way, I want to see some sulfur at bottling. Though a number of people tell me it's better not to do it actually at the moment of the bottling, but make sure you've got your juice uh, wine now correctly dosed up, um, let's say a month or two before the bottling. If you get it right at that point, you don't need to add more when you do the bottling itself. So now our wines should be well enough protected with a bit of sulfur, but not enough to be aggressive to the taste in bottle. I need to come back on the corks because it isn't just a question of uh, the quality of the cork, but it's also the treatment of the cork. And there are two aspects here. I thought I was going to be, one of the reasons I chose the Arno Ant wine is I have one of his wines, I think in fact it was a 97 rather than a 96, where the cork was gray in color and very slippery and almost fell in. The cork, uh, um, I disintegrated almost completely here, um, dried out, but actually I don't think it was one of those gray corks. And it's exactly around this period that two things are happening in the treatment of corks, which is seriously bad news. One is that they were being um, uh, treated with hydrogen peroxide. Um, and uh, the idea being that that was to get rid of any of the possible TCA taint, which had been such a bugbear, that sort of chlorine flavor um, that you get from a, a corked bottle of wine, musty and chlorine. Uh, so they were using hydrogen peroxide. The problem is, if that gets anywhere near the wine, and it probably did, it will start to um, uh, attack the free sulfur and uh, turn sulfites into sulfates and prevent them from being useful in their protective job. The other thing is it will bleach the cork, which just sort of gives you an indication, um, maybe gave it some of that grey colour. The other thing is when people were beginning to use silicon instead of paraffin, don't really expect paraffin as, as thinking of it as a, as a, a fuel or something that you can uh, use to set things on fire. Um, but uh, if you treat your uh, cork with paraffin, it tends to stick to the sides of the bottle quite well. If you treat it with silicon, it tends to be much more slippery. And uh, that was an experiment that was tried around that period and didn't do uh, any, any great good. So um, those are two specific reasons why this period in the 90s could have been extra bad for um, premature oxidation. No, don't want to drink my pre frise Happy, happy to drink the Merso, but it's showing that 96 character of really, really firm uh, acidity. Right, so we've now treated um, the main issues behind it. I have two other areas that I want to go into. One is just take a little bit of a look at uh, vintages. And the other is to look at the phenomenon and say, is it definitely eternal bad news or can wines come back from uh, oxidation? So. Let's um, first of all talk about the vintages. So 95 was a, was a weird year anyway, uh, because I thought it was going to be a really good year for Burgundy in both colours, and everybody in Bordeaux thought it was going to be a good year. But both um, Bordeaux and Burgundies have tended to age you know, in an unpredictable way, um, except maybe some uh, prematurely oxidised whites. Um, they mostly the wines of both regions haven't fallen over, but they've never got kicked on and given what we hoped they were going to give. One thing I did notice was that the uh, leaves on the vines died almost immediately, changed colour and died and fell off almost immediately after the harvest. So I wonder if the vines had stopped giving anything good into the grapes a little while before they were picked. And there's certainly just a slight lifelessness about 95s, whether they're sort of you know, second growth Medocs or red burgundies or surviving white burgundies. Um, so I'll, I'll move on to 96, which was really the pace to boy. Around about 2002 it became evident. Really, really hideous. And I will say there are not 
that many bottles that I open now of my 2006s. I opened two risky ones like 99. But I did have um, a period in which almost every 96 was dead on arrival, and now many of them uh, are not. But one of the things that happened that year, because of this viciously high acidity, the wines didn't want to go through their malolactic fermentations, so people kept them a little bit warmer than they normally would, and certainly unsulfured for much longer, and possibly that had a slightly oxidizing effect. You occasionally get whiffs of oxidation on the red 96s, but then that blows off and shows a much younger wine underneath. 97, 98, both virtues which are probably pretty much oxidizing in a correct way uh, by now. Um, I'm just going to mention, I'm not sure if um, Don Cornwell is, is here tonight. I, um, uh, I know he was planning to listen in, but he has been uh, a sleuth against uh, oxidation amongst other problems. And he's been one of the people behind uh, a website called uh, Oxidized Bergs, and uh, Oxidized with a Z. Um, and if you Google that, you will find it. Or if, uh, Don, you are listening in, perhaps you put the link up on the, on the chat. Um, and uh, he and friends uh, in California have done a series of dinners in which over three nights, they take a whole series of white burgundies in different categories and they uh, analyze them for how much enjoyment they get, but also for how many are oxidized. And 96 and 2005 have been his worst vintages, followed by 99001, were all pretty bad. Uh, those, of course, uh, except for 05, were a period, um, or even 05 maybe, before much DM was, uh, was under use. Hello, Don, I uh, see so you are there. Do please give the link to, uh, to your, the website for people to look up further. The other thing which I've tried to avoid doing tonight is sort of pointing the finger at individual growers. I don't want to get this person's worse than that person conversation, but on Don's site, uh, he has uh, done some analysis of which producers he thinks are okay and which he thinks are not okay. Um, so um, uh, moving on down, um, I thought, I, I personally didn't have so much problems with OO, but I know that many people have. Um, I'll, I'll skip on, I'm not going to do every vintage, to 02. And here there was a possible issue that if you bottled just before the new harvest, as many people do, or if you racked out a barrel into tank, um, maybe up on the ground floor in August, it was of course August 03, which was that incredibly hot, ridiculously hot <coughs> year, and that might have affected the stability of a number of O2s. And O2 is a vintage where I've even detected a little bit of oxidation in some red wines in Burgundy. Um, <coughs> uh, I'll then um, uh, move on to uh, 05, which is a weirdo. Um, I do remember that some producers said at the time that the must was oxidizing more quickly. Uh, it's an incredibly powerful vintage in the red wines and in fact in the whites too. Certain bottles did seem to be oxidizing a bit very early on. And um, since then, it has definitely been a vintage which has shown this phenomenon, but it's shown it in a way that doesn't make the whole wine seem completely oxidized. What happens is you open it, colors a little bit deeper than you might ideally want. Um, secondly, uh, the aromatics definitely, definitely show the, um, uh, some of the oxidized aromatics and then you put the wine into your mouth and you get a core of fresh fruit maybe good enough acidity but really a feeling of incredible weight in the wine a real tension and drive that's at odds with the oxidized veneer so personally I think there is a chance that 2005s will come back to life now, actually, I bought a certain number of white 2005s, and I haven't got any of them here, or I would have opened one tonight, because they're all still sitting in storage in London um, uh, for long-term keeping. I personally thought that the Lefebvre 05 whites was the best single barrel tasting I ever did for young wine. And lots of people have told me since that they've had premature oxidation in that 05 Lefebvre's. And I thought, right, well, I've got a case of Pucel. I'm not going to risk it now. I'm going to try and wait it out. And we'll come on a bit more detail of my theory of living through the oxidation period. Um, and I did wait it out. And in the Easter of 2019, I did a dinner for Berry Brothers in, uh, I'd left them by then, but they invited me back to do this, 
when we looked at the 05 vintage and I pulled out my first bottles of the Lafleur Pucel 05 and first bottles of the Lafontcham 05, we have one corked bottle of Lafleur and we have one slightly oxidized bottle from Lafont. But the other two bottles of each producer were absolutely stunningly good. So it has been, of course, one of the great frustrations of this whole issue is that we don't, it's, it's, it's not the whole thing, it's not the lot. But how can it be, is it possible that it's a phase that the wine goes through in the same way that we used to say it was a phase that white roans went through? Or is it something which is definitely a dead man and you're just lucky if later on you haven't hit some bottles which weren't oxidized when previously you did find some oxidized bottles? Now, I must say my own non-scientific experience makes me think that it is, in certain instances, a phase that it's going through. If the corks let you down, you taste anyway. So people come back, those with a more scientific bent, come back to me and say, look, it's just not possible. If, if uh, ethanol, if the alcohol oxidizes, it goes to acetaldehyde, and there's no way back from that. And of course, I, I have to bow to that, I agree to that. What I'm saying is that a proportion of seemingly oxidized bottles, it's just one aspect, maybe something to do with the phenolic aspect that's oxidized, and this is something that can come back. You know that you can bring your juice back to life when it's going brown in the cellar. Those of you who watched the um, rather fun film called Bottle Shock, um, which was about uh, Stephen Sparrow and his judgment of Paris, and Alan Rickman taking the role of Stephen Sparrow, um, there's a, a big issue, I think it's at Chateau Montelena, could have got that wrong, um, when the whole white uh, crop, uh, white wine crop, Chardonnay crop, seems to have turned brown and then it comes back to life later on. So obviously it's one thing before the wine's bottled and another thing later on. But uh, what am I um, trying to suggest here? Um, it's that there is just one part of it, a phenolic part of it, that can come back to life. Now, it seems to be borne out by vintages that used to be oxidized. Now I'm having a much better success with bottles open these days. Um, and also I have seen it on two or three occasions when an actual bottle in front of my eyes has changed back from being dark in color and almost sherry on the nose to being a normal color and fresher fruit and a delight to drink. The example I've seen, cited most often was a bottle of 1986 um, Bonnet du Marche Corte which was actually definitely a mahogany brown when we first opened it. Um, and, uh, and the nose was shot and the palate just had a tiny bit of life, but hardly any. 10 minutes later, it was a normal color. And other bottles I've had, which have been that sort of bruised apple, um, furniture polish type of premature oxidation, which some have stayed that way, some have got worse, and some have cleaned up and, and got better. So, so who knows? Um, but um, I just also want to read out, I looked through a, a few websites, um, uh, bulletin boards in both the UK and the US, and um, I looked at the sort of consumer reaction, and here's something I feel quite strongly about. So this was actually about some Loire wines, recent Loire vintage that where one producer was thought that his wines have oxidized. And here's one person's reaction. If you have multiples of a white wine, one is premoxed, might as well open another. If it's the same, no sense wasting storage space on it. Someone else said, opened the wine last night, completely oxidized and undrinkable. Grabbed the second bottle, the same thing. This one was advanced, still just drinkable. Nowhere near as good as the bottle I opened shortly after receiving them, very disappointing. I think I still have six bottles of this, of this left, so I'd better drink up or pour out, depending on what comes out of the bottle. And then someone else replied to that, that's just what I was thinking, might as well keep pulling and trying to get rid of, the, pulling them out and trying to, try to get rid of the heartache all at once or freeing up the cellar space. I am just so convinced this is the wrong thing to do. Um, partly because your mood after you've had one is that the next one, something smells or looks not quite right, chuck it out, and people get into a panic about it. If there's any truth in my theory, you're not losing anything apart from a bit of storage space. If you just say, that one's oxidized, I'm gonna drink something completely different tonight, find a bottle of something else, and then you wait for a bit. Um, and frequently, it, it's happened uh, in other areas. Uh, there was a period when all the 1983 
red burgundies I had were hideously spoiled by rotten hail. And somehow or other, I waited five, 10 years, uh, back they came to life because what was left in the fruit seemed to rise up and grow around the problem. Um, it's not the same issue here, obviously, with the white burgundy. Um, but I do believe that you have a chance of restitution later on. So um, don't panic, don't throw uh, the rest away, pour the whole case down the drain. Just say, now is not the moment, put it to one side and hope for better later. Um, I see that a few questions have come in and I've been talking uh, almost non-stop. Uh, refresh my, myself in the glass, hasn't changed much in colour, but it's held up really quite nicely in terms of a wine to drink. The worst thing that's happening out of this um, question of um, premature oxidation is that growers are telling me we need to make our wine to drink earlier. Well, I so completely don't agree with that. Um, I don't see why, with the prices they're charging, anybody should pay those prices if the wine isn't going to have the chance to develop a wonderful upside much later on. And uh, uh, I, I had my wine of the year last year was a wine which I suspect would have been much more difficult beforehand. Um, we were doing uh, a tasting, a horizontal tasting of the 1996 vintage from DRC, and we were doing it based on one of those mixed cases that they do. And when the host opened the mixed case, he saw that there was a bad fill level in the bottle of Morichet. So very generously, he went out and he bought a magnum of the wine with a good fill level. He drank that instead. It was the most astonishingly brilliant, youthful white burgundy, uh, with the acidity now nicely integrated into the wine. 24 years old, just absolutely brilliant, brilliant wine. And I remember back to tasting vintages like 73, 79, huge vintages uh, in volume terms, really good in quality, and they have stayed as being exciting wines to drink. And we cannot afford to throw that away. If growers or producers go uh, into winemaking with the idea that they're gonna make something which is gonna be ready, nice to drink young, but they don't worry about it having aging potential. Well, fine, let them do that, but don't spend big bucks on them. So um, I'm just going to look at uh, some of the questions now. Um, I've been asked uh, similar questions about distinguishing Premox from faulty closure, bad performance. Okay, so, I mean, one of the causes is the faulty closure uh, or the bad seal, um, but a properly oxidized bottle should leave you with a feeling of harmony. So the color has got deeper over the years, it should still have a bright rim, and that's the key to it. I've had 100-year-old bottles of various things, including Sautern, where the wine has been brown, if not black in color, but the rim has retained this little yellowy-green um, edge at the rim. If you've still got some brightness at the rim, you're still alive. If everything has gone dull, then you are uh, oxidized and probably before your time. Um, so, Victor, your question is pretty much along those, um, those same lines. Um, and uh, I see I'm going to have to, you've asked if crushing increases pH. Uh, I'm going to have to check back my notes and see exactly uh, what way uh, the change happens. So I, I'll answer you separately on that. Um, Uh, your anonymous attendee says that instead of the grass of competition, what about cover cropping, green mulching, composting to make nitrogen available? Absolutely, totally. Um, uh, that's certainly something that's happening and people are looking at the no-till um, production. I have to break off because I have one thirsty wife and chef who says she needs a glass if I'm gonna get any dinner later on. There you go, it's dangerously dark in color, but it's still nice and fresh. Um, ah. uh, David asks, at what age is it permissible for a wine to be ox versus premox? Expecting 96 pre-freezer to be fresh seems a bit unfair. Yes, that's true. That's why I said that that was one of my high-risk bottles um, that I was opening. Uh, and um, uh, uh, so who knows? Um, have I noticed better results for Premox depending on bottle format? Well, perhaps yes, because Magnums 
tend to, um, they're much more likely to be sealed with wax as well. So I probably, um, I can think of also a particular grower in Merceau, Mr. Fichet, where a number of people said their bottles of O5, uh, Merceaus of different sorts, had some oxidation problems. And I had a case of Magnums and no bottles, and his Magnums were all absolutely splendid, and I'm sorry I've actually been working my way through them. How likely is it after 2010, do you think we're likely to witness Premox? Because it's still around. Because we've, a lot of people have changed their attitude to closures, uh, it's actually hiding the effect, but it's not, hasn't made the problem go away. This is very, very topical because actually it's a little bit like all the uh, ways we are trying to avoid getting the wretched coronavirus now, uh, they have significantly decreased the incidences and we've got lower death rates already. But until we have a vaccine, we're not really going to be able to continue normal lives. We are living with it. And now with better closures, we're living with uh, Premox, but until we find out all the causes and make sure it doesn't happen again, uh, we will not get rid of it absolutely entirely. Uh, Lee's asks if Aligote has suffered from Premox. Uh, I don't see why it shouldn't have, except it's higher acid, which seems to be affected a little bit less, and very few people keep an Aligote for a long, long time. Um, so uh, Erasmus is asking a question about why is it less of a problem today? Well, I think we have been covering that uh, steadily as we go um, through this um, performance. Um, shall we just see, I'm going to open another bottle after this question. It's from um, same producer. No, it's not. Let's go somewhere different. Stick with a 96. I'm going to open a Meso Charm from my friend Dominique Lafont see how this, this is. Um, hold on a second. And I want to talk to you about a tasting I just did uh, last trip in, in Hong Kong before, before the virus threatened that sort of activity. But I decided to put on a Meso Genevrier vertical um, from 1990 through to, I think the youngest was probably 2010, something like that. And um, we put in alongside a few Massoperiers or Charm from Lafort, and we put in a few Genevrieres from other growers like Chauvin, um and Pierre Marais as well. We put some of his uh, Perrier in. And two things came out of it. Yep, that looks all right. Slightly, cork came out well. Cork still correctly moist. A little bit of wine going up the sides. You may not be able to see this quite well enough. You'll see it's a little bit like... And it's a lightish cork anyway, but it's, it's done its job. Let me just transfer. Let's get rid of that fellow. The vintages that I really feared for, which are the ones which I had a lot of incidents of premature oxidation from him at the start. Um, just looking for my tasting notes from that event. <laughs> We're all fine. And more recent vintages where I hadn't had a problem weren't so good. So um, won't bother with the oldest, but um, well, we'll do it in younger older. 09, absolutely brilliant, but I think he made truly gorgeous 09s. I hope you'll forgive me sort of using him as an example, a guinea pig. I'm having lunch with him tomorrow, so if he's listening in and doesn't like what I say, I shall maybe not be having lunch with him. Excellent news here. The color, I mean, the yellow has become deeper than it would have initially, but it's still got a greenish tint to it as well. Mmm. Tasty and biscuity, but in a fresh way. Not, not bruised apple, not walnuts, not curry. Anyway, his 09 Genevrier was gorgeous. The 05 Genevrier did show um, some oxidation, uh, enough so that um, uh, I decided not to, not to mark it. 04 Genevrier, more advanced than I expected when first opened, but it was really fresh on the palate. The 04 Merceau Perrier was rather heavier, uh, it did freshen up a bit, but the oxidation was winning rather than um, in the background in that one. And this raises a point which I think is quite interesting, which is that I think the richer, heavier vineyards are probably more likely to suffer than the slightly finer, lighter vineyards. Um, in O2, uh, both of them had suffered a bit, uh, and certainly the Perrier, uh, was the darker in colour and showed more of the oxidation characters, but it had really nice wine underneath. So neither of the O2s were in a perfect position. 
Uh, and the 99, which had been, uh, Dominic would probably say he's worst vintage for oxidation. And he's one of the good guys in the sense that he's been honest about it and has looked after people who've complained. Not everybody has done that. Uh, but the Ginevra was a complete delight. That was a case which I bought right at the start and I lost it in the back of the cellar and I only found it again about nine months ago. And so far I've had only one bottle that showed any signs of oxidation at all. And even that was still pretty good. Um, and then the, the 99 Perrier from um, uh, La Fon was was richer and deeper, but still really good. Uh, and 96 Masso Genevrea from La Fon was the wine of the evening, absolutely stunning. And this 96 Masso Charm is going to go with my cod this evening extremely well. Well, I've overrun by um, five minutes um, and uh, I'll just have a look. Um, I've done the questions on the question and answer. Um, and uh, very, very interesting to, oh yeah, so this is 79 DRC Morrissey was a wine I'll never forget drinking with you. Hey, great. Thank you, Scott. Um, Robert, you asked that tricky question about why Domaine uh, Lefleur changed and that they did become much, uh, uh, they did reduce their sulfur regime quite a bit. Um, we're still the same winemaker but uh, also the owner of the estate perhaps became a little bit more extreme in some ways. Um, Paul has asked what I suspect is going to be a nice tricky question. Free choice, but I choose to buy recent vintage Grand Cru White Burgundy under top grade Diam or top grade Cool. Um, one argument against Diam in Champagne trials is that ultimate complexity and quality is sacrificed for consistency. Is that true for Burgundy? I'm going to go for top grade Cork. I think many people will not choose that. I bet Don would probably go, there's yeah, someone, I can't see who it is, but from the Don, he said, no question for me, Diam, Diam, I, you don't surprise me. Um, I do think the corks have got quite a lot better. Um, I have no objection to screw cap, and uh, Benjamin LaRue has moved his whites to screw cap unless he's an importer in a given country, uh, says so not. Wow, wonderful. Um, I have talked, I hope, without too much hesitation or repetition or deviation over the last hour and six minutes. I'm going to raise my glass. I'm going to hope that all of you have a brilliant rest of the day with whatever you've chosen. And also a big shout out to my friend Scott, who has been hosting this, um, managing it technically for us. And he's doing that from uh, Hong Kong, where it is now two o'clock in the morning. So thank you, Scott. And uh, guys, we will do some more of these. Haven't yet decided on the exact date or subject, but uh, keep in touch. Let me know on the website if there's any subject you really, really want me to cover. And we will, uh, we've recorded this and we will put it up on the website in due course. Thank you so much. And I am now going to leave the meeting. Bye bye. <laughs>